the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce our guest today, I did want to mention that I do have a Patreon. If you're enjoying the content I'm putting out, I am hoping to have an additional 60 patrons. That's kind of my goal for the for 2020. And you can find me at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. This week, we have, we've got two guests, Lick and yeah. <laughs> <Lick> Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> We've got uh, Lewis and Nick from uh, the Proletarian Contrarian Podcast returning. Last uh, episode, we did one for, uh, was uh, the counselor. Counselor, yeah. Which was, I think I had a lot of fun. I thought it was really good and awesome. Like, it was oh, an yeah. awesome time. Definitely. So yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, let's, let's fucking do this again. And uh, so this time, we're taking a look at last year at Marion Bad. But I'll let one of you uh, take over and just tell us a little bit about Proletarian Contrarian. Except I do have a lot of new listeners lately. So. Sure. Newest, why don't you go ahead and take it away? Did you call them newest? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, man. I'm um, leaving this in, I think. Just yeah. Really, yeah. Oh, no, it's, good. it's good stuff. So the Crolitarian Pontrarian podcast <laughs> is about... Uh, <laughs> Um, so the Proletarian Contrarian podcast started about two years ago. Nick and I review bad movies, and we have tasked ourselves with trying to say nice things about bad movies. Sometimes we fail. Uh, with our last episode of uh, the 1998 Godzilla, it was hard to find uh, a single nice thing to say about that. Oh, film. boy, was it ever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, we come at it from a, uh, a leftist perspective and, uh, and other things sometimes and just, mm-hmm. you know, a, a lot of shooting the shit, I would say as well. <laughs> yeah, we've had a couple episodes with guests on and everything. Coop did, um, mm-hmm. Coop did yep. Dune with us, which was one of, one of our favorite bad movies, I think. Um, yes, definitely. Fa- favorite kind of unfairly maligned movies. But, yeah. um, and we'll have yeah. to have Beyond again. I know we were talking about, um, well, we won't name the film, but we were talking about a few films yeah. uh, for Coop to come on our podcast and do in the near future. Okay. Yeah, we should, we should do that. I, I have two in mind that I think are, would be really good for us to talk about. Nice. I think I know what they are, but I, I, won't, <laughs> yeah. I, won't, spoil, I won't spoil the secret. <laughs> again, so we're looking at the 1961 film directed by Elaine Resnay from a screenplay by another Elaine, Robe, Robe Grillet. Last time we did this an episode, we forgot to do a plot summary. Oh, yeah. Does, does one of you feel comfortable <laughs> doing a plot summary for this movie? I will. I'll do it, but I, I thought I, um, I'd give you that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, Nick, I'll take, take it away. I'll take a stab at it. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's a very surreal, um, nonlinear narrative. Uh, the, the only certain things are there, there are two men and a woman. There's A, who's the woman? There, and then there are X and M, who are the two men. X pursues A to various degrees of intensity throughout the film. M kind of picks up on it to various degrees of intensity throughout the film. And what makes kind of summarizing or discussing this movie so tricky is there seem to be different strands of, of timelines going on or different strands of 
recollection of things that may or may not have happened going on. The one constant is they're all in a hotel, a very limbo-like kind of um, overlook hotel type deal. And A is continuously either rejecting or correcting or kind of agreeing but backtracking with things that X asserts um, in regards to their relationship. There seems to be some sort of love triangle. A seems to be committed to M to some degree, either a, a, a marriage or they're together. And X is trying to draw her away to some degree. It's very impressionistic. It's very, there is no official statement or there is no official consensus by the end as to what actually happened or what didn't. But that's, I guess, kind of the point. And as we reach the end, it's even debatable whether or not who, or, or it's debatable who ends up with who kind of in, in this kind of palatial phantasmagorical nightmare of a hotel. Yeah, that's my, that's my attempt at like a no, concise. That, that was good. No, that, I think that's yeah. as I think well it. as it could be said, right? <laughs> This is an actual quote from the screen screenwriter, Elaine Robe Gourlay. He said, the questions you're most likely to ask yourself were, did this man and this woman really meet and fall in love last year at Mary- in Marrying Bad? Does the young woman remember and merely pretend not to recognize the handsome stranger? Or has she indeed forgotten everything that has passed between them, etc.? Let's get one thing straight. These questions have no meaning. So just to start us off on the right foot for this film. Hell yeah. Every, <laughs> everything that you thought coming into it is wrong. Yeah. The wrong, you're asking the wrong questions. <laughs> it's very accurate to, to real life memories and the way people disagree on, on things they both experienced. Yeah. And that's something that um, Alain Renier, the director, had previously said that, yeah, you, you can have all these interpretations, but he was trying to make a movie about like memory and thought. And specifically like thought processes, that's something he had said, that the film was supposed to be um, the best of his ability, capturing how human beings produce thoughts and convey thoughts. Um, so I, I think that's, uh, you know, very, very abstract, um, which is probably why there are thousands of interpretations of this film. Oh, sure. Kind of... Um... Kind of like a Russian month thing going on. Just yeah, more... it's interesting. So it's like you know, if you don't want to watch this movie, uh, or if you do and you're just like, wow, that sounds crazy. I don't really know. It's it's really it's like if you mash together like a film like Rashomon, and then you mash together like uh, Louis Buñuel's Exterminating Angel, and then you throw in a little bit of like the dreamscape of like uh, Richard Linklater's Waking Life. Mm-hmm. You have uh, this is a French version. Uh, the the yeah. you know what some people might say pretentious French version. Um, and honestly, that that was one of the things I was a little intimidated by going into it. Just the idea it's like this French film and it's black and white and all all, all the stereotypes that come up when you think of like French New Wave cinema. But it's really not challenging that much because there there's not much to challenge. It's, it just right. lays it all out there. Yeah. And it's very um, um, it operates on a very emotional level that I think is is very accessible still today. I think for me, oftentimes, art, when it comes to art house or like foreign cinema, I don't really enjoy the the movies that much. This one, like, <laughs> yeah. To, yeah, and I mean, that's kind of my, like, I enjoy that pretend, I love the kind of pretentious bullshit type films, but like to a point, right? And it's like the majority right. of the art house and foreign cinema stuff that I've seen, I don't really like, it doesn't really click with me or I don't get it or don't see the real like brilliance in it. This I think is, was totally different. The first time I saw this movie, mm. I was fucking blown. I was like, I loved it. It was, yeah. what's crazy is it's such a tight 90 minutes, but we're big on that. We're very big. We're very <laughs> we big are, on yeah. tight. It's tight. a very oh, tight 90 minutes, yeah. but it's like, you. Ne- I don't think you find yourself there's no lull in the in the movie no really and and when i watched it the other night i I was honestly a little shocked when it ended it was it was kind of an abrupt ending and not like not like it came prematurely or anything just um i i 
was enjoying it and I was just kind of vibing with the, with the mood and everything. No, I thought like it would be longer, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's kind of a staple of, of some French films, especially like sixties, early sixties, French films. Sometimes like they're a little too long and like a little too full of themselves. But I saw that it was an hour 34. I was like, fuck yes, <laughs> give it to me. Inject it straight into my veins. This is all I need. Nothing more, nothing less, please. Actually, Louis, this is a good question for you and your film degree. Um, when was French New Wave? Like, just Was that predominantly 60s or was this kind of on the tail end or the beginning? Uh, this is towards the beginning. Yeah, because okay. Breathless, I think, is right before this. Um, Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, I think is even a 50s film. I think it's 59. Okay. So yeah, this is t- definitely the beginning. And I think, you know, it's, it's definitely within um, the scope and parameters of French New Wave, but um, a lot of French New Wave films are a little bit more political sometimes. Um, this definitely has right. like, I would say the aesthetics um, and, and playing with form. That definitely right. you see in the in the French New Wave films, but then it's it's I don't want to say it's devoid of politics, but I think it is a film by filmmakers who are making at least one film that they're not very concerned with the politics. I, Alain Rene is obviously concerned with politics. His first film Hiroshima Mon Amour, um, his next film Muriel is about the Algerian War. Um, so he's definitely he cares about politics, but I don't think it's like a main concern in this film specifically. Oh yeah, I mean there, there's there's that kind of old saw that everything is political and, and yeah it's true um but people who aren't looking for politics could easily see this movie and proclaim it apolitical very easily um it, mm-hmm. it's it's almost more spiritual it's almost more like it ostensibly takes place in a french hotel but it's so disconnected from from the waking world right um, and we don't really get any other we're entirely at once basically we're Mm-hmm. At Marianne Babbo, ostensibly, right? Yeah. And I'm going to interject here. I was wrong. Breathless is 1960, so I was off by one year. But you know, films like Breathless, uh, 400 Blows, and Renier's Hiroshima Mon Amour are kind of the beginning of the French New Wave. Okay, cool. That's good. And I, I can easily see how this would be super influential, um, just it, like in the coming decade, I guess. So it definitely been cited as an influence on. The Shining and Inland Empire. And I think you can definitely see The Shining, especially like even down to the tracking shots because there's oh, like yeah. a number of gorgeous tracking shots. So mm-hmm. that's cool. I have I don't think I've seen Inland Empire yet, but... Yeah, same. But I definitely felt, I, I like yeah. mentioned to Nick when we were watching the movies, like this is like, this is Lynchian right here. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is so... The, the guy, Mr. M, he, he looks like the giant from Twin Peaks. Like, yeah, he does. <laughs> yes. He's incredible. Yeah, no, he's great. I really enjoyed the movie. I like I said, even on first viewing, and just loved it. It was one of the, like one of my favorite films that I've ever seen. Damn. So I like. I'm just curious to get things started. Like, what are what are your opinions as far as what do you like? Did you enjoy the movie? Like, what are your kind of general thoughts about it before we jump into like the meaty mm-hmm. meaty part of the discussion? Uh, Lewis, you go first. All right. So yeah, I actually I have never seen this film before. Uh, this is the only Alain Renier film I have seen. Um, that is definitely a, a part of, uh, that is a deficit in, in my film education. I don't think I saw, uh, yeah, I, did, I mean, I was, I was definitely not introduced to him in film school besides, you know, a passing, you know, mention of his name and his importance in uh, French New Wave. But uh, yeah, so this was, um, obviously I'm familiar with French New Wave cinema. I've seen, you know, a ton of Godard and Varda and, you know, countless others, Claude Chabrol, people like that. Um, 
and uh, Truffaut, not to just keep naming them, you know. To, <laughs> we <laughs> get it. You went to school. School. <laughs> you know, uh, hey, but, uh, Actually, on that note, I'm curious, uh, have you seen any of uh, Brisson's films? Yeah. Uh, he's, I think, one of my favorite French directors, Brisson. I've seen right. the majority of his films. Uh, when Nick and I were in uh, school and when we were uh, in undergrad, the Harvard Film Archive had a retrospective of Brisson. A lot of his films were restored um, between like 2008 and 2011. Um, so I got to see a lot of them, you know, in theaters, 35, new 35 millimeter prints um, in one of the worst theaters ever, unfortunately. Like Harvard Where? Film Archive is, Harvard Film Archive. Okay, it okay. is the, um, the most uncomfortable theater to sit in. <laughs> Um, their seats, um, you know, it's, it's great nostalgia. The seats are probably the same since the beginning of the Hellover Film Archive. Mm -hmm. um, but it's hard to sit in a theater for more than an hour. Right, um, right. But it's, yeah, uh, Brisson is, is one of my favorites. Um, uh, Lancelot du Lac, uh, the, the, the retelling of the Arthur story is, nice. uh, is great. Um, oh, interesting. You know, Althusser, <laughs> Balthazar, stuff like that. I'm just kind of curious. Uh, there's also, like, speaking about Godard, uh, remember the I've seen the fucking like the 1991 Doors Doors movie. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. Kyle MacLachlan is uh, playing Raymond Zarek, like the organist for yes. the Doors, and I completely forgot that was Kyle MacLachlan. Yeah, that's uh, great. Okay. So they're both like him and Morrison are both in what is I think it was UCLA Film School. I'm pretty sure yeah. together. And yeah. uh, there's like a scene in the movie where they're on the beach, and he's like, "Hey, yeah, I get to go see, talk to the head of like I forget if it was Warner Brothers or which studio it was." Mm -hmm. And they were, I forget, the thing was like, he's like, what's your script? And he's like, Godard doesn't use a script. They're like, who, who's Godard? <laughs> <laughs> and then when Morrison shows his, his movie, like he's just getting booed at the screen. Yeah. Just all the other students are like, this is bullshit. <laughs> oh God, that, yeah, that's fun. So yeah, Lewis, um, did, did you like this movie? Well, I did, yes, <laughs> After I, all that's that, all to right? say, uh, yes, I did like this movie, um, but I was, I was, Obviously, with some familiarity of the French New Wave, kind of knew what to expect. But yeah, still um, blown away by the cinematography, you know, those those gliding tracking shots um, and just uh, kind of the way the film starts, um, yeah. which we can get into a little bit more later. It's just um, it's pretty bold. I think that's kind of what what, um, you know, is is indicative of the French New Wave is just like a boldness in how stories are told and what we see on screen. Um, really just a, I mean, actors don't come on screen for the first few minutes of this film. You just hear this narration that just keeps repeating itself as we see like crown molding and mantelpieces and ornate ceilings and, you know, pillars and columns of this uh, spa resort hotel in ostensibly Marion Bad. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, it's, um, I enjoyed it to say the least. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, Obviously, don't have Lewis's pedigree here with, with film or French New Age specifically. Okay, Lewis doesn't have Lewis's pedigree. He's black. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, like like I always say on the podcast, I'm the Flash, you're the substance. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think this is the first French New Wave film I've seen. I don't know. Is is Le Chinois from Godard? Is that yes? It is. Okay, okay. You're yeah, good. So. You've seen a few. I can tell you. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Lewis. Um, but yeah, no. This um, I, I think like the most ringing endorsement I can give it is like it really put me in this melancholy, introspective mood. Like immediately after I turned it off, it just made me think of things I think I remember differently than other people who've experienced them. Um, like interpersonal relationship stuff and like, I don't know, more more kind of mundane anodyne events. But um, 
but yeah, no, it, it, I'm not super, super big. I'm like, oh, a, a film or a book or a piece of art, whatever has to connect to you emotionally for you to be able to enjoy it because I can very much enjoy and get a lot of value out of things that are relatively alien to me. But the, yeah, this is like one of the more striking examples of something I've experienced recently where it really struck a chord with like my, my lived experience i think what i love about this movie is that there's not really character development there's not like plot is pretty threadbare we don't need that bullshit here but like the experience <laughs> just like the the editing and the acting and the yep. writing and the cinematography alone are enough to make this like an enjoyable film and like yep. it is it can be challenging but it's it feels pretty accessible for like you know what i mean i think it's mm-hmm. more accessible than one would think definitely going, going yeah. into it yeah that, that was exactly my first initial impression like 10 or 15 minutes in it's like it's like this is not the ster- the unfair stereotype of french new wave this is and any any zoomer could pick this up and, yeah. and get something out of it I, think. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's the constant like camera movement and editing that just keeps it fret but like it's there's never like the tension is pretty yeah you're like there's so there's something so mysterious about the movie in the way you're like really just kind of you're never bored with the action even though it's like i said really like the same scenes being repeated over right. and over again mm. similar dialogue etc right but it's never it never gets that like lag or there's never like a drop in the in the tension at all yeah no and um i, th- I think the background actors the, the extras have a lot to do with that because they they talk and they do things and they're clearly told to do things but um they, they have like this punctuated stillness and they and they only talk sometimes and they talk out of turn and they they're they're overdubbed with each other and they they're like set pieces too and that that is so striking because it's never the focus but it's always there i don't know that 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 feels like such a poignant and um in in like tangible representation of how we kind of how how the average person interprets like people around them that they're not talking to it, it it felt very real. Like like when you're in a crowded restaurant with someone you're in a relationship with or someone you want to be in a relationship with, that is how everyone around yeah, you feels. Very true, right? Which was mm-hmm. kind of mind blowing. Yeah. It's almost that it's kind of that habituated uh sense of like, you know, it's like your your drive to work, right? You don't really yes. even though that like external world is existing out there, you don't really like your focus is more narrow in terms of like your immediate experience. Yeah, yeah exactly. And everything else is just kind of like this uh almost like a matte painting <laughs> you know what i mean or a set right yeah right, right. <laughs> yeah cool well and and all of that's accentuated by you know some of these french new wave um techniques of course um and just ways of shooting ways of editing you know um i would say the the tableau nature of a lot of these uh shots and scenes really plays into what we're talking about here you know i mean there's there's whole scenes of the movie that don't last very long but they there's no movement of character there's just movement of 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 camera you know i mean and the actors are literally just you know still as mannequin there's i think one of the first times we we see that um it it can perhaps be jarring for people and maybe it was jarring for the audience uh, especially you know french new wave wasn't it wasn't a term yet it wasn't uh, it was this is the infant stages and there's like these like really quick cuts of people just like looking still and looking off in the distance as there's still dialogue going on 
but you you're realizing like that none of this dialogue is coming from these characters we're looking at so yeah it's just it's it's such an interesting film on that level and and that's kind of what i was getting at when i said like like this film feels like what it's like to be with someone that you're talking to in a crowd because like you'll notice i don't know an interesting or attractive or, or weird looking person and and you'll you'll hear snatches of their conversation but like you you just won't be following the flow of their conversation because you're paying attention 90 percent to the person in front of you and and they like obviously it's not like a literal depiction of that but it's it's that like kind of little drop in and flow flow in to the majority of your attention it, it just stylistically like it, it captures that perfectly i think i really like that aspect of how they would kind of pick up on a, the background characters every once in a while and let them kind of take center stage mm-hmm. and i think that's really what's interesting too is there's like a shift there's more participate like at towards the like this probably midway through the film the focus becomes entirely on the two like it's right it's, it's x and a right there. a is the woman x is yeah, the guy yeah, pursuing okay. her yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. m max max <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious but yeah moving on i guess in into the acting which i don't I don't know how to how to discuss that, but I'll at least, well, at least introduce her. Like three three primary cast members: mm-hmm. um, Delphine Seri, she was a, a La Femme Brune, mm-hmm. and we have Giorgio Albertazzi, La Homme L'Accent Italien, <laughs> and Sasha Pitoff. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, and I can't even pronounce what he's <laughs> the character in French. But those are our primarily like players um, that we see most most frequently and Sasha who portrayed M who is I guess you would assume would be the husband or the lover of of A yeah and I mean if you even want to take it in kind of a more mythological direction he he possesses her to some degree and and she may or may not possess him I think his performance was my favorite because he had this sort of weird silence about him he he was very like his facial features too like he was had such strange like a long sharp features on his face he's so big too very yeah Yeah. very imposing Mm -hmm. in terms of his stature and just had this weird i'm not even sure how to (laughs) describe like this weird (laughs) sort of elan about him like you know what i mean whenever you're seeing him play like and i think the the game nim Nim. those scenes i think are my favorite in terms of the acting and the interplay between between m and x and those games and like the undertones yes particularly with i guess x as well had some great like his you could kind of feel his frustration but he doesn't really voice it and it's all done with just like subtle facial it com- features it, and stuff it comes out a little bit in his his voiceovers like his his yeah. inflection <laughs> i think he he you can clearly feel the, the resentment he feels towards right. both towards both a and m but yeah he, he's much more res- he's much more reserved than you would expect and that game nim was really interesting too so so nim is basically you take a, a variety of objects in this in this case in the movie um cards and they use matchsticks as well and you lay them out in like a pyramid shape on a table and the two players take turns taking away uh, matchsticks and you can take as many away from the wider rows or from the narrower rows, but you have to take at least one and whoever's left with the last one is the loser. And, um, and Mr. M, he, he plays this game like five or six times throughout the movie. Right. Um, with several characters, most notably X a couple times. Um, and he, he just wins every time he, he's always, he's never the last one with the, the last remaining item that the stick or the, the card. I really yeah. love too, like the oblique, the obliqueness of the moves they would make with those yes. was really good. Mm, yeah. um, you know what I mean? Just picking like the odd shapes and like, I don't know, just figuring out the mechanics of that in terms of the yes. direction, yeah. it, I thought was 
pretty cool and and more to the point for acting like the way they would x specifically like he would kind of like petulantly move his arm forward put his (laughs) finger down and and try to overly act casual but it's clearly like it's 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 this artifice of trying to act casual and like unbothered when he's clearly sweating bullets (laughs) right and especially when m you know so matter of factly almost the same finishing move every time right he takes just two from i think like the top row he takes either it's matchsticks or dominoes or whatever other you know ephemera they use he just he just groups them together and that's it slides them away and he wins and you know it's interesting you said nick uh, the mythic quality he does he does almost seem like a god or a demigod or something above all of these people because he never loses uh he's just there in the corner Mm -hmm. he he looks different and distinct than everybody else um, he definitely has like this this somewhat menacing presence at the same time, just kind of enigmatic presence right. throughout this movie until he starts talking and then kind of like that kind of goes away at the end, like the last 10 minutes, he, you know, his, he actually has, you mm-hmm. find out he has this relationship with A and then it's like, oh, this is kind of the more, you know, kind of melodramatic stuff. Yeah. I mean, when, as he becomes more, the, the second he becomes more human, he becomes vulnerable, like that kind of. A, a layer becomes stripped away and he becomes a little more vulnerable. But um, but yeah, he, he has like that psychopomp affect. Yeah, very, very eerie. A herself is great, I think. Delphine Seyrig? Uh, yeah, Delphine Seyrig. Yeah, she, she's great. I don't know if... It, it's like beside the point to try to pick a main character. Like that's not even the, the point of a movie like this. But she... A lot of the action, and I think arguably like all of the all of the conflict, such as it is, revolves around her. Um, because clearly, both of these people, both X and M, are invested in her to some degree, and and her kind of like like continually contradictory feelings. They they feel so real because um like like that's what it's like to live as a person and just like respond to anyone. And she, and she plays she plays off that like conflict within herself very well. I think. Do we think? Do we agree that she would? Would you consider her a femme fatale sort of? At least aesthetically, like that's the look she's yeah. definitely going for, or, or they, they they definitely went for with her for sure. Yeah, my understanding is they were influenced by the um, the Pabst film uh, Pandora's Box, uh, where the main character has you know that that bob haircut kind of almost popularized the bob haircut in america you know and uh says what they're kind of going for mm-hmm. um and you, you see a lot of, of that um that aesthetic in uh in film noir uh, american film noir films uh, for the the leading ladies the the femme fatale characters there's one particularly striking scene it's when um i guess like it doesn't matter when in the film it takes place because all this takes place concurrently and and none of them in the same timeline but like towards the end of the actual film the runtime she turns around quick she she tells x to leave if you've ever loved me you should leave right now and he does he goes to lean on the balustrade and he crumbles and then she whips around and she sees M coming towards her and she does a scream. No, that's not when the scream happens. The scream happens when she's in her room, but it's like very much the same thing. Like she turns around and she sees, and I think it's X and she does this scream and it's so short and it's not overdone, but it's so horrifying the way that it's, but both her, like her actual scream and the way that it's just cut around that. That, that was, that really rattled me. It was like very, it was, it was so eerie and so um just memorable, that, that effect. Any other acting notes you want to call out 
Um, definitely the extras again, like I said earlier, um, it's such a small thing and I, I know a lot of it just comes down to what, what take you happen to get, but like having those like far off looks and then those, those quick cuts to those people with their expressions on their face. Um, they, they just feel like so many ghosts and it's a, a big part of that is just like the, the acting of, of those individual extras. Mm-hmm. And I would definitely also, whoever the casting director is just got a lot of great, you know, I don't know very pale looking French people, like very <laughs> aristocratic, you know, yes. weirdo French people to in, in, inhabit the background of these shots. So kudos to the casting director as well. Lots of angular faces. Uh, yes. There was a guy that sort of had thinning hair and he kind of had a drawn face and you would imagine that, yeah. that he like in real life had, or in color would have had red hair. Um, mm. I don't know if you can, bigger nose. I thought he was quite good. He reappeared in a couple of scenes here and there there was also um i think oh no i I was i was confusing him with with m i thought there was like some kind of um like very imposing looking like butler character but i I think i was just conflating him with them oh yeah i think it's just them are we feeling ready to move into into the cinematography angle here yeah i think so (laughs) yes the the meat (laughs) yeah for sure and i think probably probably the star (laughs) the the film is the the visual experience Lewis, you touched on those those tracking shots and like the fact that it's like a hotel hallway, creepy hotel hallway with a tracking shot going down and like instantly I thought of Shining. And it does that thing too that I know you like, like and, and I like obviously. Um, because uh, I am your mentor. <laughs> yes, because you, you've shaped my tastes. <laughs> but like just l- long shots or even quick shots, but just like still shots, not no overly necessary, o- overly unnecessary camera movements, no, no weird zooms, no weird like anything, just... A, a flat static shot either that either does or does not have people moving within it but just it, it lets the scene breathe for a little bit and, and and it was the perfect the perfect tableau the perfect uh, location for for those kind of shots uh specifically like the, the backyard of the hotel the back gigantic the garden, lawn yeah. yeah the garden yeah i mean you know and then even when they do move the camera you know there's there's a lot of purpose behind those movements um there's something they want to show you it's 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 just not this very you know chaotic camera movement uh, just to show off how you can move the camera um you know it's a lot of the times there, there's some crazy shots in this film in the kind of the middle of this uh, of the of the of the film the, the second act or so where you know where ostensibly maybe in one timeline and then the camera shifts, maybe goes through a mirror or something, goes down another hallway, and it almost seems like we're in another timeline entirely. Yes. Um, where I think they're playing Nim at one point, uh, M and X, and then the camera glides over M's shoulder, past a, a mantelpiece with a mirror, goes to a hallway shot, and then you see you know, A and X there standing. So yeah, there's there's some really interesting uses of that tracking shot and and the, just the architecture of this of this this palatial estate spa or whatever it is. To that end, I think there's uh, before I forget, I want to mention. So there's one scene, uh, and I pointed this this out to Nick, and it's like early on, probably in the first twenty to thirty minutes of the movie. There's a I believe she's blonde and she's got her hair up and she's in front of like the hotel desk. Yeah. Oh, and there's like, yes. she's, there's like a, a cut as she turns and to, she like turns to look down this hallway. And then like it, it happens so fast mm-hmm. and it's so subtle, but it's like it, exactly that same phenomenon that you were just describing was where the whole like scene shifts to like this other, it's almost like a shift to a different timeline or perspective yep. or like yes. another repetition of this, whatever narrative is 
ultimately underlies the film. Uh, but if you like, if you're not looking for it, you would. I missed it the first. You time. would you totally to, miss it. Yeah, I had to like <laughs> right. rewind. I was like, "Holy shit! Look at this!" <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I, they hide the cut with her within her movement. Yeah. So like you, right. you don't even notice her when it, whenever they cut and they try to like show oh, a trans a character yeah. moves or something like that. There's always a slight difference, but because it happens when she's turning, it's very it, like they mask it within that. What that? That's not a mat. It's not a match cut. I don't even know what I don't think technically that's a match cut because a match cut is usually yeah. the like the shape or whatever. Film, yeah. film major. What is it? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean it's it's like almost close to a jump cut in in, right. in a way. Yeah. But it's not as noticeable. Like it but it's feels not like as it feels like continuity. Maybe the editing, like it feels continuous, but it's definitely intentionally displaying kind of like the weird right several threads of narrative that are going on here. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, there's I, I even hesitate to say this because it sounds too like dorky sci-fi-ish to to use this term but it, it almost feels like multiple worlds like parallel universes going on but um i i think a more kind of poetic and more real to life way of saying that would be like it's it's like just different strands of memory of of the different um or of, of the same year at marion bed it, it's it's different people remembering the same thing but in doing so there even when you try to remember the same thing later you you remember it differently yeah and, and that's just such like a subtly perfect way of, of depicting that you, using cinematog- cinematography tricks and um and and angles and everything one of the early shots that really the first sh- first shot of the film is that tracking shot of the really ornate ceilings and the arches and and so forth and like the the filigree detailing on the walls of this kind of palatial estate that i believe actually was supposed to be originally like a palace of some sort or yeah at least within narrative i got heavy um marseille vibes from this or i even got like sistine chapel like it's very much what i was reminded of by the Mm -hmm. way that i think that even the first shot is like that there's a depiction of a i don't know if it's uh, supposed to be like a uh, what's the fucking word? Cherub, maybe? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, right. Mm-hmm. And I, I was thinking of Versailles memory, so I don't know why I said that. But like the <laughs> the, the polished like mirror, the polished silver surfaces that made up the, like the, these mirrors that ran the whole length of the wall. And in the opening, we get that kind of repeated, that line about like describing the place that we're seeing and the place that we're moving through. And it, it really makes those shots feel yeah. feel more impactful. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's actually an interesting thing. We'll have to put a pin, and I did. I was able to find the entire that line oh, okay. that gets repeated over and over. So yeah, we'll get to that a bit later on. I was wondering if have either of you seen the new Pope? Uh, I saw the Young Pope. Oh, Young Pope. Which yeah, is sorry. Yeah, same, well, same series basically. Yeah, I just haven't seen the second season yet. Yeah, so I, I was wondering I like seen it, either. This very much reminded me of Sorrentino's. Yeah, that's a good call. Stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah. so much of it takes place in the Vatican, which has the same sort of elaborate bullshit, like, filigree yeah. stuff, this, the painted ceilings, the arches, the columns, like the, right. the excess of it. Mm. Um, but yeah, you should, that fucking show, like, the, oh, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, I yeah. highly, if, especially if you love camera and yeah. mise-en-scene, it's fucking insanely good. That That is a good touchstone. Um, I'm thinking of, like, some of the, the floaty camera movement of, of Young Pope, like, just moving through buildings or spaces and everything. Yeah, that, that's a very good connection there there's like a baroque and like some of the shots resemble like these uh renaissance paintings so so much i mean and, we're getting young popish but like there's an aspect of that here i think too oh yeah and they they kind of directly call attention to that within the text of the film because there, there's so many focuses on actual paintings like just either people looking at paintings or th- there's one painting that looks very similar to the garden in the yes. back of the hotel and they cut between that and the back of the garden like okay we see we get it it's like the same thing but it yeah that that 
painter tab painter's tableau is is definitely like they 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 bring it home by actually showing those paintings or or different paintings within the hotel right i'm glad you mentioned that i want to at least bring this up like later on in the film is i felt like there was a a relationship between the actual gardens and the film itself and these one was like a photograph of the gardens and i think one was like a drawing of it yeah Mm mm-hmm that I it's thought, like a mural oh, of the gardens at one point. Mm-hmm. I did see on on the Wikipedia page actually of this of this movie one of the shots of the garden. It's actual people standing like it's an actual shot of the garden with people, but they shot it on an overcast day and they painted shadows for just the yes. people, but not mm-hmm. the objects, which lends it the surreal quality because the people are either the only real things or not real things within the garden because they have shadows, but nothing else does. Yeah, that's actually like all I knew about this film beforehand. Yeah. Like I knew like kind <laughs> of great. the plot it's... synopsis and I, I remember seeing that shot in film school, like when we were talking about like, you know, the influences of surrealism on film and, you know, mm-hmm. my teacher pointing that out and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I saw it. I'm like, oh yeah, this is that movie that has that <laughs> shot. <laughs> that's definitely the most famous shot. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine. And I think it's like the Criterion Collection cover and like literally every cover for the this movie, you know, and mm-hmm. like Kino Lorber's, you know, and all that. Right. Aside from the early tracking shot going kind of going through the hotel, one of the first shots of, of people that we see is probably, I don't know if it's a porter or, you know, a servant or some kind, something yeah. like that. Um, so we see like he's walking, we see like this hallway and he's kind of walking towards us, but it's this, the depth of field and the shot is great. And like the, yeah, like how, I don't know, it's almost like, what is it? Um, what's the fucking technique where everything is in f- deep focus, maybe? Deep focus. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah, the thing they do in Jaws? deep focus. Well, no, you're thinking of like a vertigo zoom. Yeah, that's something. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's definitely deep focus. It's, yeah, that, there's, a lot, there's a lot of deep focus in this film where, you know, background, middle ground, foreground are, are all in focus. And there's a couple of split diopter shots too, Lewis. Yeah, I was wondering about that because it's, it's interesting because I don't know if they're actually split diopter shots or if they're just like, they have the um, kind of composition of the split diopter. It was hard to tell. But I think there might at least be like one. I could, um, I could have, yeah, I could have sworn because I, I, when I saw those types of shots, I, I, my, I immediately snapped to the middle, like looking for the fuzzy barrier. Right. And, exactly. and I, I, th- I think it was there at least in one of them. I'm thinking of like I think it's M and X together. Yeah, and you know, it might also just be easier to mask that fuzzy barrier in black and white than it is yeah. in color. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I definitely thought like some of the shots were composed like split diopters. So it's, I think it's entirely possible they actually what, were. Explain that terminology to me. That's not one I'm familiar with. Sure. So um, if you've seen the film Jaws, that has a ton of split diopter shots. So it's where an image in the uh, foreground and the background are completely in focus. And then everything in the middle is not. So the, the middle yeah. ground is not. Um, and it's a camera trick. Um, I think it's a lens, a, a specific lens you put on your camera. Uh, yeah, it's like split one, diopter lens. The, the the glass of the lens, half of it is is produced for for info, for foreground, and the other half is produced for background. So there's nice. that kind of like fuzzy in the middle. That's what I was getting at. It's like the where, where the glass blends. Yeah. I'm almost <clears> thinking of like I feel like there's that shot of Roy Snyder on the beach that is kind of like that, but I don't, I don't know. I've actually never seen Joe's. <laughs> oh, no, I know, I know, I know. Wow. <laughs> I know. And I love, um, love Roy Schneider. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's used throughout Jaws, um, and and Brian De Palma uses it throughout his films. Um, probably one of the most yeah. 
the ones like the most well-known one I can think of is in the film Carrie, when Carrie has a note where she has, she writes like a love letter about the, the, the guy who has like the curly blonde hair who becomes the prom king. Um, we see him in the foreground and, and like right around his curly blonde locks is, is where the fuzziness is. And you can mm-hmm. see Carrie in the background as she's kind of looking around, wondering where her note went. Gotcha. Um, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a great technique. It's, one of my favorite little camera tricks. It's just yeah. like it's. It just looks so eerie. You're just right. like, wait, yeah. well, there's something off about this shot. What is? What's wrong? Here? It feels very comic booky to me. Like yeah. it, I, I think of like scenes from Watchmen or something, like where someone's face is in the foreground and like something's going on behind them in the background. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's, it definitely has that like effect of like a pa- paneling. It's very. It just seems like a comic book panel. Those types of shots. Something else I found very visually arresting was the play within the play or the play within the film, mm-hmm. <laughs> the plays, the thing and the, the actress that had on like that, her necklace, like she had the diamond necklace and the diamond necklace was like sparkling, like crazy. There was something so like, I just, I don't know, something interesting about the way that the diamonds were sparkling. And that happens a few times that I just love. throughout too. But that, I think that's the most notable instance of it. Cause a, at some points she wears like jewelry and it, it sparkles just, just as yeah, brilliantly. Very, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's super noticeable in in her scenes in that play, and then like also like the eye makeup as well. Like she oh, got yeah. the, she got the oh, yeah. it, it looks really contemporary. Yeah, like girls are doing that now. Like with the 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 what is it called wings or yeah, something? Yeah, and yeah. I think it's, a, it's a well a lit well shot. Has that too. It's just it's a it's a well lit film in general, you know. And there's and they play with the lighting a lot, like especially towards the third act of this film. Again, if there is really such thing as like three act structure in this film, <laughs> this is like a one uh, act. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. A, a, a one and none act. <laughs> yeah, a one and one thousand act uh, movie. Every every all, shot is a new act. Basically, is it all rising but, action? Like there's yeah no, yeah yeah more yeah, or yeah. less. <laughs> but in what would traditionally be considered like the third act, there's a lot of there's a lot of lighting tricks, yeah, you know, and, and changes of lighting, and and sometimes that denotes a kind of a different uh, period of time or, or timeline. Uh, you know, especially that last um, bedroom scene between uh, A and uh, M or A and A and X. We're doing fucking We're, algebra. <laughs> we are. Yeah. So no, a, actually, a, a is the girl. M is the Lynch giant guy. Yes. And X, and X, X is, is the, is the incel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In, incel Italian. What's the difference? Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. I read, so one criticism I read was talking about like the, the, the algebra connotations that, and what A means and what X means, what M means in algebra. Really? And I was like, this uh, is too much. I'm not, that's, <laughs> I don't want to read any more about this. Sounds like some Reddit bullshit. Right. Like, <laughs> it does. It, it is some Elon Musk epic bacon uh, stuff. We have, we have devised a in quadratic equation to f- solve the film. <laughs> <It's> like, right. <laughs> go, just going back to lighting really quick. Um, that scene where A, she comes out onto the balcony and it's so washed out. Yes. It's like the, the lighting mm-hmm. is just like turned up to like max. It just, every, everything like blends into itself and you can only really see her her eyes, like her face. I, I think that's after that's after she leaves her room at one point because she she leaves X in there, I think. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah. But yeah, just a super notable. Who knows? Piece. I don't remember, but. <laughs> <laughs> right. but, I, but I remember, but you remember that, that yeah. shot when she comes out. I remember that shot. Yeah. yeah. There's that washed out shot, which comes a little earlier in the film. And then. Um, one of the last times we see her in her bedroom, it's very washed out when she's kind of beckoning X into her bedroom. Yes. Is that the, that was one where it was like a pretty, like a lot of quick cuts. Yep. They were mm-hmm. like repeating that. Mm-hmm. I, I love yeah. that a lot. That wouldn't felt particularly like a Lynchian 
yeah, yes. in terms of the style. One of my favorite rooms in this hotel is this fucking room with the mirrors that we like do this reverse yeah. tracking shot through. So like we're going the hollow, we're like coming towards, I guess the like stage, what is that stage? I like the audience, like if it's a play, right? Mm-hmm. And the screen is the stage, like the camera's moving towards us. And that room is just insane with like all the yeah. mirrors and like the chandeliers that, and it's re- it's really striking for all the mirrors in this movie. Like they never, I mean, obviously they would edit this out, but like it's such a masterful use of the camera because like you never see the camera right. or anything. You never see anything that you're not supposed to see, especially um, in that room. I mean, that yeah, right. Not, and, and they yeah. they get a lot. They get a couple of shots of like X talking to A, but like they they're only facing each other through a mirror. Like X will be in the foreground, and then he'll the mirror will be right in front of him. And through the mirror, that's how we can see A, and he's talking to her, but she she's not actually in in the frame that shot yes that was amazing like in in the hallway that was that was fucking wild i need to find it 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 made me think i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna make this requisite uh, lefty podcast sopranos reference here but like when (laughs) when um they're having livia's wake at tony's home and tony opens the opens the mirrored uh door to his liquor cabinet you see a quick reflection of pussy after Mm -hmm. pussy died spoiler Mm -hmm. um and then when and then tony closes the door and he like he's freaked out and he looks over he doesn't see anything like it's very quick and that's all we see but um it it, just like that eerie eeriness of like ghosts appearing in mirrors well david chase i mean you know my understanding is he he was a a big fan of uh, european cinema so i mean oh yeah yeah i would definitely expect um, that i think like more of like uh bunuel i think uh, he had uh, a lot of uh influence on on david chase's uh uh you know show and um just his his perspective but uh I'm, I'm sure he's seen last year at marion bad yeah yeah that for sure i love the look of the of the sopranos so that kind of that tracks <laughs> yes that's my favorite like the dramatic lighting and especially like season three onward yes yes when um, it stops being like it it kind of takes it it goes on a different trajectory right i'm like this kind of fox style tv show like a little bit to like hbo what we think of hbo or the sopranos as is like that third season is kind of the turning point yeah anyhow um there was another shot that is it's a dark room there are three arches and there's a man like sleeping at a table and yes there's like it's like backlit so the foreground is dark and you just see the light penetrating through those three arches that i thought was just gorgeous and i'm gonna like scroll up to that shot now on the, on the dock can you see that lewis yes mm-hmm. i thought that was just like the composition here like this is fucking gorgeous there's another one similar to that it's very formalist in composition right yeah there's another one that's similar it's um two men playing yes. chess in the foreground <laughs> that one is very compelling yeah. because what's compelling about this shot is you've got the two gentlemen playing I don't even is are they playing checkers like what the fuck? It some, looks like a, it. a board game, yeah, some a board, board game. game. The squares. What's so amazing about this shot is Risk. the way that <laughs> so <laughs> in the background we have it's a painting, but the depth like it's almost like an optical illusion. Yeah. yeah, like whenever you look at this shot, you can't tell that it's not real in black and white. Like looking at this framing that I have, which is yeah, it does wild. just look like it's kind of like they. It looks are, real, right? Like yeah. it's unbel- um, they're on like the landing. Yeah, uh, yeah, and there's there's the the banister, and then there's another landing, and then so on. And it's like, oh no, wait a second. Yeah, this is a mural. Uh-huh. Yeah, and the depth of that is just incredible. And of course, in 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 the painting, the the ground is is checkerboard too. Checkerboard. Uh, right. 
Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> Nick always comes through with these yeah. little fucking. Yeah, it's my, it's my, it's a great shot. Um, yeah. The guy uh, who's not well, not, neither. Oh, of that's them the hey, that's the actor right? actually. See the guy on the left. Um, yeah. That's one of the extras. That's the redhead guy. That's the yeah, yeah. guy I, who, who I assume is like blonde or redheaded. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, he kind of looks like old Steve Miller. Like <laughs> Stephen Miller yes. from the Trump administration. <laughs> yes, he does. In like two, only two more years, he'll look like that. <laughs> yeah. Another shot that, and really this shot, combination shot editing was fucking so good. And I'm going to scroll down to this too, is this, they're playing Nim. And again, is it X? X is our scorned lover. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And M M is the the big guy. Okay. So X has just lost the game of Nim once again. And we get this amazing shot of the card on the table. And we see both characters' reflections somewhat blurry and out of focus but still there and like inverted, like they're upside down in the frame. And as we get that shot, editing wise, we get the laughter, like at the moment that he loses, we get the, a, a woman's laughter. Right. Yeah. That is just like drives it home. That's like so brilliant. Such a good edit. And, and this shot really drives home the idea of like this game, Nim, representative of, I don't know, like if, if you want to take the, the idea that this is like some kind of purgatory or limbo that these, that these people are stuck in. Um, it's, it's like, they're, they're the ones that are left behind. They're, they're the, t- they're the representative last card, if you will, that that's like the, the thing not taken. And that's why they, they always lose this game because they're, they're always leaving something on, on the table as, or like to, to, to draw out this metaphor <laughs> right. really, really pedantically, mm-hmm. but like in, in um, the fact that they can't resolve everything, there's always something that keeps them stuck here is why M can always win at Nim because he he's I mean at least up until a certain point he he has all of his he's like more collected than that that always tr- very much struck me in terms of psychoanalysis because it's kind of like right. and I think particularly like the relationship of, of ourselves with desire mm-hmm. he, it's almost like this game of Nim is playing with this notion of like you try to reach no matter what route you try to take to fulfill your desire you're always going to lose you're always going to have that lack there's always that remaining card right on the table yes that you can't like you know what i mean like no matter what route you take again you wind up still at this at that starting point of like of the lack kind of to get laconian with it yeah and that's what i was getting at when i like when when i was thinking about like why they picked this game specifically to be so i mean it's simple and it's visually striking so that lends itself to the cinematography a lot but on a deeper level yeah I, i think the fact that like the loser is the one with the last thing the idea of like a game it's usually whoever has the last thing wins like conceptually of like a Mm -hmm. game but that makes you lose if you have the last thing something interesting too that i just i just had this idea is like and again this is getting psychoanalytic is this idea of the lost object that you never you never really had which i think really Mm -hmm. maps onto x potentially really well because like he has this Yeah, he has this desire for wait, a, right? A, 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 yeah. Desire for himself, which kind of makes sense. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, but, but he has this desire for her that never potentially, you know, we could, you know, for the whatever our purposes are, we could say, yeah, he has this desire for her that's never fulfilled. Right, um, and he never had her to begin with. Like, begin with, who knows? Right. Like that is brought into question as far as you know what I mean. So I think that really maps onto that kind of psychoanalytic notion. And on a on a meta level, um, I was reading the the screenwriter. I forget who who did the screen who wrote the screenplay. I can check in. Great Grier, yeah, um, uh, yeah, Alain Rob Rob Grier, whatever. Yeah. The, um, well, when when he was um, directing it, he he was very faithful to the screenplay, except. Yeah. 
there were like one or two notable omissions and one of them um, was a rape scene. Yeah. Um, specific, and, and the idea of not including that, of, of not including a, a, a violent taking of his desire, like a violent, horrible taking of his desire kind of puts a fine point on that. I think like the, that this idea that like, yes, even, even when we, the idea of achieving what you desire, we're not going to show that. But like, even if we had put this in the movie, it would still not be that. Cause you're not, cause in, in the act of rape, you're not taking what you desire. That's like, it's a horrible transgression. It, it just works like a, a, a double level, like an affirmation of that idea that th- there, there's no satisfaction to be had in this world. Kind of, I guess. It's still sort of hinted at though. Um, there's, it is. I, I'm thinking yeah. there's a particular scene in the gardens where, she emerges with one of her broken, like her shoe. She's limping. She's yes. barefooted. Mm-hmm. And she emerges and she kind of like, I can't remember if she's walking towards the camera or not, but she has like, like the look in her eyes, like this dead eyed look that mm-hmm. you would kind of very much map onto like someone who's had like a traumatic experience like that. Yep. But they're just like completely broken and like shocked. And like, there's this deadness about her, yeah. about her gaze really, that it's, is really kind of chilling. In that moment and then we kind of get like these other bits and pieces there's one scene where he has her up against that statue and he's like yeah feeling on her breast aggressively and she's like no leave right. me alone too right. so like it's danced around i think it's probably better to like imply it like that to leave that implied than to mm-hmm. so i think that was a good choice oh yeah it's I mean, still like hints at it but leaves you wondering which fits into the like um dreamlike state it's it's much creepier and much right. more real to leave it that heavily implied than like to show some sort of like Jaws. I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> last year Marion Ben. You don't really show the <laughs> the French New Wave version of Jaws. You just show the glimpses and like the hints right. of the shark, but you yes. never really show the full yes the full thing. So. Although I will say, and this might be skipping ahead to like writing a little bit, but I think. Um, you know, knowing that uh, uh, Rogue Grillet had, you know, wrote, and to my understanding, a fairly explicit rape scene. And then, um, you know, he and then Elan Renier said, nah, I really don't want to do that specifically. But it's, I think it's almost more than hinted at and almost like it's explicit. And then it's, and then it's kind of denied in right, the yeah. film in um in towards the end. And yes. this is where some of the lighting comes in right. where she's sitting alone uh, in her room, very dark uh, room, and it's a, a, another tableau shot where it's you know kind of um, symmetrically framed. She's sitting um, on her bed, and you know just kind of um, bedside tables on each side. We're very pulled back, wide shot, um, and then uh, X is walking up the stairs, and he goes into her room. And then I think he gets her up against the mantelpiece or something, uh, and then the camera pulls back through the doorway of her room down a hallway and there's a voiceover narration where he says something like, Oh no, I don't remember. She says, no, no, actually. And then he says something like, Oh, it's uh, no, that's not how I remember it. You were sincere. Right. And then the camera as it's pulling back, pulls into another hallway entirely uh, as it's, it reverses out of the room and then it's a tracking shot forward into another room. And that room of course, again, is the same bedroom with different lighting and that's when right. it's washed out again. Yeah. And she, and, um, and those quick cuts of her like embracing him. He's like, and, that's how I remember it. Right. And, and th- I think this is, it's either this sequence or near the sequence is, is that, that scream moment that I was getting at earlier in like the, idea I think so. Yeah. She, <laughs> she has this horrified scream and, and it's cut off abruptly. Cause like that, that's not how he remembers it. That's not how he prefers to remember it or, or right. what have you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's interesting. So I was reading a little bit more about uh, Alain Robigrillet. Um, 
he uh, was a, an author, fairly prolific French author, but he was also into S&M and his, his oh, wife, uh, Catherine, was like one of the most like well-known like dominatrixes Hell in yes. France. Dude's rock. And, uh, <laughs> and she like, she has a documentary uh, about her called The Ceremony that was made in the last few years, actually, or maybe early 2010s. I can't remember the exact time frame, but um, yeah. So like he, he seems like a really weird character. It's the thing about French cinema um, <laughs> that people don't want to talk about is like just how populated with like sex pests it basically is. Uh, <laughs> I, I am Pepe Le Pew has. <laughs> exactly. I, I am not surprised by this revelation whatsoever. Yeah, no, that's the thing. Like, if you think about it, you're like, oh yeah, of course, like the French, yes, <laughs> and just film, you know, <laughs> and film, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> but also, like, this is a film that uh, Gilles Deleuze discusses a bit in his Cinema Two book. Mm which I think is the time image, which is like perfect. Yes. Okay. Obviously like fits so perfectly with, with this film, but there was this, uh, so I'm a big fan of kind of the French post-structuralist in terms of theory and philosophy and so forth. And so there's this like controversial letter that a bunch of them sign like Foucault, Deleuze. Oh yeah, Harper's, Harper's released it the other day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was this letter about like basically, um, I think contesting like the age of consent or something. So like some oh, weird shit. thing with like the age of consent. I've heard of this. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty yeah. fucked I, yeah. up. Yeah, uh, wasn't yeah, wasn't Foucault into SM? Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. And yeah. and he he was the Panopticon guy, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, this movie feels like a Panopticon. It's like this idea, like the the, the audience is is watching these people. These people are watching each other. The the mirrors are watching us watch each other. Right. Yeah. Hell yeah. It, it all it all comes back to SNM, folks. That's <laughs> the secret to unlocking the universe. Uh, okay, Freud, are you yes. getting more psychoanalytic? <laughs> yeah. Another one of the most fucking amazing sequences, visually and even like emotionally, is this shot of of A. Is the woman? A is the woman. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good. We'll, we'll get this but, but, end, but I mean, like that that. I'm not good at math. Who, okay. who, yeah. <laughs> who is different? Are, are, are we, who, who is, can, can discrete entities, are, are they distinct outside of your own perception? Right. Yeah. <laughs> a, a is M is X. Damn. I am the walrus. <laughs> <laughs> Nick is Lewis. Newest is Lick. <laughs> but so it's this, so it's this room and it's got kind of an arched, arched ceiling uh-huh. and most of it's obscured in darkness, except for this sort of glimmer of light. And A is sort of like slowly sauntering towards yeah. the camera. And then she stops in the glimmer of light that's kind of coming at a diagonal. And that was just like, oh my God, <laughs> it was so incredible. Yeah. Um, uh, another cinematographic, cin- cinematographic, uh, <laughs> cinematography thing that I noticed was um, a couple times a and X, they mimic the posture of the statue they were talking about. Yeah. Oh, right. Um, mm-hmm. he, he's standing in front of her and she's, th- I mean, the whole point is like, it's very ambiguous. Like they, they offer different, different interpretations of the figures in the, of the statue. Like he, he says, oh, he's holding her back and warning her. And then, and then X says, no, she, the woman in the statue is, is pointing ahead to, to something in, uh, in front of them. And she, she's, she's doing it like joyfully or whatever. Um, and, and they, they do that a couple different times um, apart from the statue, just in different timelines or whatever. Right. It's interesting too, like on that note, there's even a scene where like his narration is sort of, it's almost like it's driving, like, mm. you know, like she's an automaton, like he's describing it and she's kind of yes. like performing yeah, the yeah. exact function that he's describing in the film. And even beyond that, I think there's these weird hints about the narration that match with 
the hotel edit, like the, the visuals that you see in the hotel, like there's a connection, there's metonymy between the scene that he's describing and like what we see actually on the, on screen. And I think one of the most notable of that, that's kind of cool. And it gets to this like idea of, of memory and, and how and different, how different people remember different things differently is he can't remember the name of the play, but the camera is showing us that little yes. billboard right. with, the, with the title of the that play. has the title yes. of the play. Yes. A little yes. shit like that. That's good shit. <laughs> there was a number of times throughout the movie where there that happened that I thought was, was yeah. fucking great. But that's like the most obvious one that I can kind of pick out to, mm-hmm. to describe. But yeah, there's there's several times where that sort of occurs. Another nice thing is, especially in the opening, um, but it happens a few more times. It's like as the camera moves towards the rooms where people are talking the voices get louder or or less or, or quieter the, as, as the camera moves like to the populated rooms it gives the sense that you you are the, the the viewer is the camera right right the doppler effect is that what that's called um i'm I thinking know. doppler effect is like Isn't whenever that a doppler thing? effect is like when a train or radar yeah. if there's a train approaching you you can't hear it that well, but as it passes, it gets louder. Like if the train is blowing its horn and you're in front, the waves right, are like right. short and you can't hear it. But after it passes you, the you hear wavelengths for a, get longer. And correspondingly like longer time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And I, I, that kind of <laughs> that kind of tracks onto like as you approach something, it, it's less distinct, but you 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 can recollect, you can you can sense it more the farther you get away from it. We are not scientists, nor are we mathematicians, <laughs> folks. Right, yeah. uh, we, are, we are podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we are. Liberal arts, man. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any other cinematography or visual elements that that stand out for you? I'm sure we could go on. We. The, there's yeah. just so I mean, we could probably do like a breakdown of almost every like, you know, every shot and, and camera movement. It really is uh, pretty stellar stuff. But uh, no, I think we I think we covered a lot. Um, so we can, I think, move on to editing at least briefly. Um, I did want to mention that Resne got his start as a film editor, which I think, yeah. and even I read that he, so whenever he's making the f- directing the film, putting he's he's got that kind of, uh, he's got that eye for those yeah. editing points in mind and i think in addition to the cinematography the editing was quite brilliant and again drawing back to that that scene where we get the shot of them their blurry reflections and the focus is on the the card on the table and the edit of the woman laughing yeah that like little moments like that the moment that i called out earlier where the woman is in front of the the like the uh, front desk for the hotel and yep. we get that cut that's like in a different like a different instance of mm-hmm. that or a different time or what have you those were some of the more kind of brilliant things but overall the i think the editing was oh yeah was another, brilliant. another one the that that scream i keep going back to the the point at which it's cut off because we, we get enough of it for it to really impact us but then right it, it is cut off at just the right moment to to be abrupt and to be as 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 kind of choked out as um as it feels yeah and I think, you know, we've been kind of hinting at it, but we haven't said it out loud, but, uh, you know, the sound editing in and of itself and the sound mixing in this film are pretty incredible. There's one uh, scene I, where there's there's two men on a stage playing violins, I think, um, and we don't actually hear them playing the violins. We hear the film score, and that's all we hear. We don't hear anybody talking. We don't hear any other diegetic sound. We just hear the non-diegetic sound of the score but we're we're watching and so is everybody else watching these two men play the violin and that adds another like very haunting quality because there's that dissonance where you're like wait a second that's not the noise that a violin makes and if so that's fucked up 
Maybe. Somebody's out of tune. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what violins sound like in hell, honestly. Um, th- this might be a really weird reference point, but like what, what I thought of with the soundtrack was um, the social network, the Fincher Facebook movie. The, the Atticus Ross and um, whatever says Nine Inch Nails dude they 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 collaborate Trent on the score Res- for that. Trent yeah. Reznor yeah yeah uh, they collaborate on the score for that and it's like this droning hum that like yeah pretty much like from the start of the movie to the end of the movie but like it kind of it kind of swells and picks up at certain moments but it, it never intrudes upon the actual events of the movie itself and and that, that's what I was reminded of here like kind of this um certainly not not like a droning hum but like a constant like low it was like a funeral like I- it yeah. reminded me of a funeral dirge. Yeah, it, sort of. And it picks mm-hmm. up at certain moments, but it never like breaks its surface tension. And it just, it kind of qu- gets quells itself and it goes down to the more like quiet, subtle things um, when, when people are talking when, or when things are happening. Um, it has a very like horror film quality to yeah. it, the soundtrack. It, it, it's, it would like, it would fit well within a lot of like silent horror films. If you were to watch like the original Dracula and, you know, yeah. you know, Put, put in this soundtrack, I think it would work well. It reminds me also of um, a film from uh, a year after this, in 1962, there's an American independent horror film called Carnival of Souls. And if I remember correctly, the score is also uh, predominantly organs, um, which you know makes sense when you think of carnival music, there's a lot of use of organs and such. Um, and that, and that's film. That film is actually very similar to kind of my interpretation of this film and kind of the, the limb, how it kind of depicts limbo to a certain degree. Right. Yeah, I thought the hypnotic narration underneath, like the organ, eerie organ music just itself gave it that kind of spooky... Mm spooky vibe for sure and i mean we've we've made this comparison a couple times already but the shining i, w- I was thinking of um the the music to that just like the the um who is it he kubrick worked with her for a few different movies i think it's the same person who did the clockwork orange uh score i can't remember off yeah, the top of my head yeah sorry i i'm never good with remembering the names of like composers there's like five or six i can remember and then that's about it <laughs> rest in peace mark hunter yeah, yes right. yeah very true r.i.p wendy carlos that's it Yes, and Wendy Carlos did the the synth, the crazy synths for, for Clockwork Orange, but also she did the the Shining. The, the Shining yeah, gotcha. Right, because the Clockwork Orange too had that kind of classical reference point too with the Lud, Luddy Van. Yes, yeah, yeah, and, that, and yeah. that's um the glorious Wendy night. Wendy Carlos, a pioneering um trans composer actually, and she she arguably like create like brought synths to the forefront, oh, like that's right. redoing yeah. synth. synth. Yeah, yeah. Re- redoing like songs with synths nice yeah i forgot about that little interesting note but i did do an episode on the shining and i feel like i had touched on that now that you mentioned it oh wendy carlos is still alive she's like 80 but cool <laughs> <laughs> nice. yeah, interesting yeah. any other editing details or techniques or standout kind of discussion points i don't know i mean i think we've talked about a lot of editing throughout i mean you know it is yeah. kind of um within the the uh, culture and, uh, and just the uh, style of, of the French New Wave, you know, with stuff like jump cuts and um, kind of repetitious cuts and, um, you know, tracking shots and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a nice kind of blueprint for a lot of the, the films that would come after. Um, but it also, it, it feels kind of like a uh, a mix of kind of the, the French films that came before this, which, you know, kind of, are, are more classical in, in their editing style. And then, you know, you have this kind of disruption that is the, the French New Wave. You know, the first disruptors, it wasn't <laughs> Silicon Valley, it was the French New Wave folks. 
so we can we can safely move on to writing and to that end i want to read there's this is is a passage that or this is a bit of dialogue or like narration that gets repeated a number of times throughout the movie but i thought was so great and like a lot of times this was matching very interestingly with the again the like images that we're seeing that sort of correspond and have this metonymy with what's being said. So I'm going to read this. This is kind of a heavy passage, so bear, bear with me here. Silent rooms where one's footsteps are absorbed by carpets so thick, so heavy, that no sound reaches one's ear, as if the very ear of him walks on. Once again along these corridors, through these salons and galleries, in this edifice of a bygone era, this sprawling, sumptuous, baroque, gloomy hotel, where one endless corridor follows another, Silent, empty corridors, heavy with cold, dark woodwork, stucco, molded paneling, marble, black mirrors, dark-toned portraits, columns, sculpted door frames, rows of doorways, galleries, side corridors, that in turn lead to empty salons, salons heavy with ornamentation of a bygone era, as if the ground were still sand or gravel or flagstones over which I, I walked once again, as if in search of you between walls laden with woodwork, among which even then I was waiting for you. Far from the setting in which I now find myself standing before you, waiting for the man who will not be coming now, who is not likely to come now to part us again, to tear you away from me. Will you come? Very good beautiful. stuff. Um, good stuff. And, and we do hear it throughout the film, like bits and pieces of this. I think all of this we get in the first maybe 10 minutes. And then I remember a lot of the, the gravel stuff. They repeat that yeah, a lot towards yeah, the end sure. when they're like outside. Although, so I, I watched it with subtitles. Well, I, I have to, but I, I watch every movie with subtitles. I'm one of those people. Um, but oh, uh, it, it, this, it had, you know, the sound for the hearing impaired. And it was like, gravel and i was like it doesn't it doesn't look like they're walking on gravel right now it's, <laughs> this looks like the flagstone if anything but i was like this that's a little thing whatever it's it's kino lorper's fault yeah and that that description it it just reminded me of like walking into like an old movie theater it reminded me of uh, walking to the harvard uh harvard <laughs> film theater that lewis hates so much like this idea i love of, it but uh, yeah that, right <laughs> like this idea of like some like carpets that absorb up the sound and like p- old paneling and, and ornate everything um I mean, it's obviously describing the, the the hotel to some to an extent, but also harping on that metatextual angle, like being in a theater and watching this happen, or maybe right. in the perhaps in the theater of the hotel. In a th- yeah, like a yeah, like a playhouse. Yeah, yeah. The, the the playroom that we see. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, that's I guess that's the first time we see actors too, right? Like mm-hmm. both, you know, On stage. again, right, and metatextual <laughs> actors, as in actors uh, in the film, and then they are actors playing actors. Mm-hmm. The play's the thing, or I'll catch the king. <laughs> that also has like a long literary history, uh, a long literary tradition of like um, plays within plays or, or film within film or, or books within books. Like the, the obvious, sure. most famous example is Hamlet. Yeah. Um, but but it, it, I don't know, like Don Quixote and just like... Well, another uh, French film, uh, um, Rules of the Game, uh, mm. du jour. Um, you know, that's... Uh, has a play within a film mm-hmm. um, it's, it features pretty prominently. And it's also about rich people in a palatial estate. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's more linear, but um, you know, it also kind of has some of these similar themes. This, this dialogue very much reminded or made me feel that or evo- evoked that sense of, again, this place is like a mausoleum 
or a purgatory or something like that, particularly that description of where one's footsteps are so are absorbed by carpets so thick, so heavy that no sound reaches one's ear as if the very ear of him walks on. I thought that was, mm. I don't know, something about that deafening, the deafening silence of yeah. this palatial, austere. But yeah, it feels like a very ornate mausoleum where all these sort of people are sort of running through the same repetitions of... Nick and I have been watching Preacher. And there's yeah. like, in you get this... Similar kind of vibe because there are characters in Preacher that have their own, their own personal hell is to like relive their worst moment right. over yes. and over again. So it very much like, that's kind of what reminds me here too. Yeah. The just, same like, the rep- same vibe. And the repetition, like the very repetition of that passage you just read, like that it repeats itself. Yeah. Within, right, that within that section also throughout the movie and uh, this idea of like, and I, I, you touched on this the other night when we were talking about it, like the idea of, this movie is eternal recurrence for all these people. I, I think one very valid interpretation is um, these are the same people experiencing the same things over and over after the universe has been destroyed and created time and time again. Like, like right. every every scene essentially just happens just in a, in a new age of the universe. Yeah. Um, I, I think I think that's a valid reading, and that's I don't know. I, I like that idea that like it's just these same people doing the same thing over and over for all eternity. But there's different realizations to be had every time. Right. I view it as sort of this sort of the idea of of history or time like spiraling. And so the exact thing, the exact same things are not happening, but they're sort of like the idea that history doesn't rhyme or history doesn't repeat itself, but it It rhymes. rhymes. Right. Mm -hmm. It's kind of one thought that I had Mm -hmm. as far as trying to understand the sort of narrative of the film or like the kind of central conceit of it. Right. And that idea that like just in, in remembering things differently, that, that creates a different timeline, that creates a different universe, that creates a different reality. And because we remember things differently every time we remember them, just the, the reality is constantly replicating itself over and over and ad infinitum. It definitely gets to that Deleuzean quote about this or the, like the whole idea of that. Dele- Cinema 2 is t- the time image, which I think is why he like actually references this very film mm. as part of that book as an example of that. I don't want to get too far into that because there's a, a few other little like just random bits of dialogue and narration that I thought were quite striking. There was one, I think, A is our... <laughs> yeah, it, it, She's it, our heroine, it, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm. So she had a great line that was like, the fear of losing such a suffocating bond is gone, which I think is really interesting too when you like think about that in the context of the action of the film is she's sort of, you get a sense that perhaps she's afraid of starting a new life or she even references to like later on like what what kind of different life would you have me live so i thought it was interesting that this sort of almost implies that the husband or the, whatever the lover could potentially like she was afraid of of losing that suffocating yeah. bond but it's that's now gone and been removed but that is sort of like a contradiction again in terms of what we see her remembering and her feeling throughout the majority of the film which is later than undercut i forgot to mention this too by like the husband's narrative which i think we wish you actually were going in that direction a little bit earlier um but we didn't mention the photograph which i think is a huge oh mm-hmm. a huge thing right, to consider right. yeah. x x is insult dude okay so x yeah, yeah. Ha- presents her at some point with a photograph of yeah. them together at marion bad yeah. at least presumably but even they don't it's unclear like if that's accurate or not if it was a different place if it was like there was like a Carl's, not Carl's, Carl's bad, bad, but think, something, something like they, they the mentioned a yeah. handful of other possible places. Right. Mm-hmm. So we see that. And then like later on towards the end of the film, 
she there's like that drawer that's full oh, of, mm-hmm. you know, yep. of all the photos and there's like you know 20 to 50 yep copies they play of they play photograph. him with the, with the photos yes oh that's yes. another really interesting moment is she has them like arranged in a like pyramid shape yep. and then x like enters the room and then if you notice they're gone yeah she has them laid out they're like laid out yes. on a blanket or something and then that blanket is is totally gone in that like I think she throws the look towards him and then we get the cut of his perspective looking in. And at that point yeah. they're gone. So it's like ostensibly a different iteration of the same events. Mm-hmm. Another notable thing. I don't think we've anyone's mentioned so far is um, M shoots a at one point. Yeah. Oh yeah. He kills her yeah. <laughs> with a gun. With like the fucking uh, like from the Tim Burton Batman. Like yeah. remember that giant gun? That yeah. yeah. Out? <laughs> <laughs> like that's the, I mean, it's a little bit exaggerated, but like his gun is like this huge. It's this big, yeah. It's this big long. It's a penis. Musket, like it's musket, yeah, exactly. Because exactly. <laughs> um, there's that other scene when a bunch of men are just doing target practice. Oh yeah, that's true. I in that. right. like one of the main mm-hmm. halls. Yeah, we see that repeated at least once. I think that lends itself to my my read that like the, all of these things have happened. It's just between every cut, there is a life age of the universe in between each one, and then we just start up again. Um, because like, I, yeah, I do think she, she does die in that scene. And at, at least from one interpretation of, of the proceedings. X had a great line that was, uh, you can find me in a whispering silence worse than death. I think very interesting if you're conceiving of this as sort of a mausoleum or they're stuck in this eternal recurrence and in, in the context too, of like the silence of the, of the other background characters too. I wrote down A's response to that. Her response was be silent. Oh, shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of like her response throughout this movie, though, to him, right? Like, she kind of really, like, has, she doesn't want to hear any of his shit. Um, (laughs) But, like, her hell is having to listen to him prattle on. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) She describes him, you're like some phantom waiting for me to come, which I thought was interesting, too. Which goes to, like, I had read an interpretation that he is either, like, a stand-in for one of the gods that are in the statues or something like that. Okay. So he, his purgatory is the hotel and like visits or there's some way in which like the dead and the living are able to interact or like somehow pass through okay. and interact with one another in this hotel as a potential explanation. Sure. Um, I think I'd read, and maybe this is just on Wikipedia. I don't think I did a, a deep scholarly dive here um, for this one, but I read that it was like, some people think it's like the, the Orpheus yes. myth, you know, mm, Orpheus right. and Eurydice. And it's like, yeah, maybe, I don't know. I don't really feel strongly about that, but uh, it sure. Has, it has elements of that, but like, what just is, suggestions. I don't know the that myth that well to either of you. Orpheus, curiosity? Orpheus was actually, actually uh, my friend June, we should ask her cause she's super into mythology and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But um, or- Orpheus was the best um, mortal musician in the world. And yep. he, he could play so well that when um, his, his wife or his fiance, um, Eurydice, Eurydice, whatever. I have no idea. I've when, said when, Eurydice. I've heard Eurydice. I don't know. Um, when, <laughs> when she was, when she was taken to the underworld, he, um, he played for, for Pluto or, or Hades so well that uh, Hades slash Pluto allowed him to take her with him back to the land of the living, but he couldn't look back until she was in the mortal realm again. And so he, he walks, he, he traverses the underworld. It's like this insane long trek with her behind him. And he continually asks her, are you there? Are you there? And, or sings to her. And she's like, yes, yes, I'm here behind you. Um, and when he gets to the, like the mouth of hell and he's about to leave, he turns back to look at her 
and she was there the entire time. Um, oh no, that's the thing. She can't respond. He has to just go go forward in faith that she's behind uh, him. Yeah. And he's so nervous that he that she's not with him anymore. Right when they're about to be safe, he turns around and sees her, and she's spirited away to hell forever. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting in the context of that particular statue that gets a lot of focus with the the man exactly. and the woman exactly. right. walking, and she's like behind. She's behind him. Yep. Exactly. And he's not looking at her because um, if, if he does, then she'll go back to hell, and, and he yeah. will eventually. But. I think that's maybe why I think yeah. that interpretation exists. It might hinge a little bit yeah. more just on that just statue, the, just but statue, I, yeah. I don't know. I don't buy it. I don't think it's entirely relevant. Yeah, it, it's it. There's suggestions of it, but like with with mythological illusions, it, it doesn't have to map one to one. It can just be like right. Yeah, because that's how mythology works. It, right. it, it it's evoking an evocation. It's it's not like mm-hmm. a yeah. one to one. And they Any mentioned other- like those statues are like of a of a king or something at one point, like Charles the something. Um, uh, I'm uh, not sure. S- stem Lord, uh, <laughs> logic, well, logic brain M comes in. He's like, well, let me tell you what this really is. And he's like, it's actually <laughs> this king. <laughs> it's like, right. he, he, he gives like the historical background of the statue. Some, yeah, it's some, it's some king and some, some queen, I think. Yeah. Any other uh, writing or screenplay issues you want to bring up? Uh, the the selection of a hotel is, is just so poignant and apropos. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, it, it it reverberated outward to to become The Shining um, or, <laughs> or to to influence The Shining. Yeah. For, but um, I think I think it's it's who's that French guy? Derrida, the guy that did the road trip through America. That was Baudrillard. Baudrillard, yeah. He I think he in in that book America he writes about like how hotels are so like the idea of like the, this home that you inhabit momentarily and then you just never go there again. Um, like, like we're just passing through these, these spaces. X has a quote. He says, all bedrooms are the same, except for, except for that one to me. Talking oh, yeah. about mm-hmm. where A was in the, was in, was in the bedroom. Right. And yeah, just the, just the idea that like all of our memories are composed. Of, so many of them are, inter- are interchangeable or just fade into the background or so many of these places that we've been just fade into the background because they, they become as insignificant as the next but some of them stick out for one yeah. reason or another. And it could be the most innocuous of reasons, or it could be something as life-changing as, as a rape. It's that habituation that I mm-hmm. talked about earlier of like, you focus on, there's so much data that you're taking in that you can't, like you can't process all of it. So you have to choose. Yes. Or you don't have, you don't get to choose, but like those little fragments of meaning mm-hmm. and, and stick in your head. And, and if we take the more spiritual view of this movie that like, Marion bed is 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 either hell or is either purgatory, purgatory or limbo or um or even the earth which is which is hell in the most sense <laughs> to some extent like, like we're we're only we only inhabit the waiting room yeah to hell. <laughs> yeah we we only inhabit this waiting we only all of reality is just a hotel we're we're only here passing in our, through, in our transitory yeah. passing through like it very good yeah <laughs> deep I agree. yeah that any uh, Lewis did you have any other stuff on uh, the screenplay or writing or Technicalize um, on that. That end no, of the I just um, I do think like the screenwriter, um, the the kind of um, the differences between the screenwriter's vision and Alain Renier's vision. Um, it, you know, it's it's depending on like what uh, period of their lives they're both passed on now. But you know, I think right after the movie came out, um, the screenwriter was like, eh, I was betrayed." by Alain Renier and then you know years later he was like no actually this is exactly what I wanted so it's just it's just uh it's an interesting dichotomy between screenwriter and and, and director um and especially just it seems like tonally 
best of my understanding, it's like Elan Renier really changed what the tone of the screenplay was and uh, just based on uh, Grillier's other works and such. But um, I, I guess they they had some reconciliation later in life. So yeah. um, The screenplay was published as a book. Yes. <laughs> eventually, which I think would be, I that, wish we would have had time. Like, obviously yeah. that's... <laughs> I, I think it, it essentially becomes like sequential art or, or graphic novel to some degree because it's like it was published with stills, I think, from the movie. Yeah, and I mean, also the just another literary illusion is obviously no exit. Um, the start play. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah, that's yeah. good. good <laughs> yeah. Right. Three characters who all hate each other stuck in this place for all eternity. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically, right. Now we can sort of wrap up our discussion on on some various themes or thematic elements. One of the first things that jumps out to me, and we just discussed that, was like their sort of X X and A's relation to the statues. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly what drives that home is, as we had discussed earlier, like some of the moments, the actual extras or what have you, the other characters are simply like standing there as if they were statues. And then they'll sort of pick up motion. I don't know, maybe that's that's the connection that I'm drawing between them. And then, of course, I guess the mythological element perhaps is the uniting thread there in um, a relevant quote here i think x says this um it was so cold last year that the fountain froze uh and right. I, I think also uh, the, the people froze too like they they're ah, that's funny mm-hmm. again coming through with the little details that i forget <laughs> another line that i thought that was was kind of cool here and this was from from x uh which is like the first one of the first times that he seems unsure about the narrative or like the events that occurred like he's almost always sure of what's going on and she's the one that's often like, no, it didn't happen that way. But there is one moment where he says, do you remember? It's probably not true. It's not true. Yeah. Right. Does he say yeah. it's not true or does she respond? I, I'm pretty sure it's him. He's yeah, like yeah. repeating that Yeah. as they're relating some aspect of the story or like it's a visual, like it's showing the scene and he says this. But I think that well, I think- goes to that underlying idea of like how memory is unreliable or right. like there's different perspectives perhaps. Right. And I think, I'm not sure if it's this moment or if it's a different moment that where he, he, he brings up the idea, the notion that M might have killed A, and then he quickly denies that as well. Uh, like a second later, he was like, no, 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 no. Like he says something like, I need you alive. Um, right. Yeah. You know? I remember that now. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure if that's the same moment in which he says it's probably not true. It's not true. I can't remember. I don't now. think. I don't think it is, mm. by my recollection. But who knows? Who knows how? Yeah. Who knows? Know? <laughs> Between the three of us, in, X, <laughs> A, and M. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> in one timeline, he said it. In another timeline, she said it. It's all right. the same. Eventually, yeah. at all. Exactly. Another thing that I I couldn't quite make figure this out, but. I discussed it a little bit earlier was this, the paintings of the gardens, the garden itself, the film, the, there's like a photo of, of the gardens as well. I, I think that's pushing towards something, but I couldn't quite, that I can't quite articulate, but there's like a relationship. There's some type of meta aspect there for sure. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, And definitely like the shadows too, right? Like we talked about how 
there's the, the famous shot that you can see on the cover of the Criterion DVD. It's, it's, there's no shadows for the shrubbery and the shrubbery is all these, these, uh, these pyramids and these little, you know, orbs um, with the fountain in the distance, but the people have shadows. But then there's scenes where, I don't and it's not actually, it's not exactly reversed, but we do have, there are scenes where, you know, the shrubs do have shadows and perhaps the people have shadows too. And it's just kind of normal again. So right. I don't know what that means, but did did we ever mention how those shadows were were painted on? Yeah, I, I, okay. I, I, yeah, I think Nick said that. Yeah. Just wanted to make sure. Yeah, and I mean another metatextual example, like the, there are paintings of the garden, oh, and then yeah. using the paint to achieve that look, that surreal look of the garden in right. real life. Gotcha. Okay. Right. Plus the depth that you like, and you know that shot here. I'll pull it up on the on the screen here. Is this one where it's the gentlemen that are playing chess or something? Mm-hmm like the artificiality, like, and you brought up too, like the connection between the checkered tiles and the che- checker board that they're playing, like the optical illusion of that too is very like interesting in terms of a meta textual. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Damn. Yeah. No, this movie is good. People should just see it. It's, like, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's a tight, what, 94 minutes. And it, it, minutes, yeah. it, there's so many memorable things and the, it does, it doesn't really matter to some to, to, to yeah. a certain extent, like how, right. in which order things happen and like it, it kind of really lends itself well to a podcast discussion because we yeah. can kind of jump around and that's, be fit in the subject matter, jumping around works, I think. The experience oh, yeah. of the film is more important than the narrative yeah. or plot or even, I don't know, Sequence. I guess acting. The vibes, man. It's a vibes yeah, it's movie. A vibe it movie. is a vibes movie. It is absolutely yes. a vibes movie. Yeah. Or, or we could use the term mood piece if you want to be a little more hybrid. Right. Fuck that. <laughs> vibes. A tone poem. That's what a lot of critics love using, tone oh, poem. Yep. Oh, yep. yeah. That's, That's like a Malick film. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's even oh, more like God. obscure than this. Yes. I think every... Like this did, uh, this yeah. did kind of the same thing, honestly, as a, as a Malick film yeah, in a lot of ways like it yeah, had yeah. the cinematography the editing the sort of sort of like loose narrative tree of life and is... over like a uh, voiceover right uh-huh. right mm. tree of life is evocative of this i think yeah definitely especially yeah. the beach the beach yes. scenes yes, yes. all yeah. the dead characters you would assume definitely right very, like similar vibe i just like literally thought of that one thing that i caught towards the end of the film is this repetition of who's our feminine character? Okay, X. No, I'm sorry. X is no, it's A. 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 Okay. <laughs> um, I'm just doing this as a bit now to at this point. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> A is oftentimes, what's kind of funny is she is shown or she's depicted wearing a white dress or a black dress. Right. There's always yeah, that. Yeah, There's yeah. a flipping back and forth and sometimes she's in the black dress. Sometimes she's in the white dress. Shadows and light, um, the the checkerboard, the the marble of the statue. Um, right. Oh yeah. These the film is literally a black and black white. Black and white. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Another random note is all of her dresses were Chanel dresses. Yes. Oh, I read yeah. That. Yeah. Chanel again. Chanel often is black and white. Like, yep. That's kind of that. Yep. That like elegance and simplicity. The yeah. The yeah. Uh, minimalism of the palette. Something interesting that I found here in the kind of the- theoretically was the notion of like, so Henri Bergson, mm-hmm. French philosopher who focused a lot on time, which I think is particularly relevant here. And yeah. I think it's why Deleuze 
kind of mentions this film in cinema too is Bergsonian time is this kind of idea that the past is present in the present and the future. Like there's not this sort of linear experience of we experience time in this sort of lit kind of at least kind of this linear way very much like the film is sort of linear in a, in a sense, but not, you know, not fully right. Yeah. It, it meanders and it, it circles back on itself, even as it's still moving forward, mm-hmm. um, kind of like a wheel, like the paradox of a wheel it, as it moves, as it rolls forward. The part wheel of, of time or like that spiraling motion of time. But I think it's kind of cool to like collapse. Bergson essentially is collapsing this notion of like past, present, and future. Mm-hmm into one sort of continuous time where like there's no there's no distinction between the past yeah. and the present because the past has influenced the present. So the past exists within the present and the present exists in the future. And the future right. is also even like recursively going back and influencing the past as well mm-hmm. through potentially that could be through memory. The future re goes back and like informs our memories of the past yeah. in a sense. In an, inter- an eternal present. Right. But also, like, it's interesting in this sense of Nick Land has this idea called templexity where the future influences the past. Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of breaking down again, kind of like pulling apart that linear notion of time into where the future can retroactively impact the past somehow. Or like, they're just kind of like playing with those, I think even on a those very, distinctions and like pulling those apart. I think it's interesting. Even on a very basic level that, that definitely holds water. Like the, people's expectations of the future surely shape their, right. their current actions. Mm-hmm. I also want to go ahead and, and read a little bit from, from cinema Two. Um, something that I thought kind of referenced this, a little bit is, uh, let's see, he says, in last year, it is X who knew A. So A does not remember or is lying. And it is A who does not know X. So X is mistaken or playing a trick on her. Ultimately, the three characters correspond to the three different presents, but in such a way as to complicate the inexplicable instead of throwing light on it, in such a way as to bring about its existence instead of suppressing it. What X lives in a present of past, A lives in a present of future, so the difference exudes or assumes a present of present, the third, the husband, all implicated in each other. The repetition distributes its variations on the three present, which I think that that's going into that. That's where the Bergsonian kind of tripartite structure of time yeah. is being like kind of explicated through these through these three different three different characters and their interrelationships with each other. He says, we must go back to the Bergsonian distinction between the pure recollection, which is always virtual and the recollection image, which makes it actual only in relation to a present in a crucial pass, crucial passage. Bergson says that pure recollection should definitely not be confused with the recollection image, which derives from it. It remains a magnetizer behind the hallucinations, which it prompts. On each occasion, pure recollection is fixed forever in an artificial pose of terror. In cinema, Resnay says something ought to happen around the image, behind the image, and even inside the image. This is what happens when the image becomes time image. The world has become memory, brain, superimposition of ages or lobes, but the brain itself has become consciousness, continuation of ages, creation or growth of new lobes, recreation of matter as with styrene. The screen itself is a cerebral membrane where immediate and direct confrontations take place between the past and the future, the inside and the outside at a distance impossible to determine independent of any fixed point, which is perhaps what creates the strangeness of Stravinsky or Stravinsky. The image no longer has space and movement as its primary primary characteristics, but topology and time. 
which I think is a pretty good, you know, kind of meta yeah. reading of the, of the film. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Theory, theory That's all I got to say too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember reading um, bits and pieces of both cinema one and cinema two in, uh, in film school and thinking like, I don't know why that we're doing like just these bits and pieces here and there. It's like, you need to teach me a whole fucking class on this. Like right. it's, it's just like a whole semester uh, of like three to four different classes on on, on Deleuze's books because it's it's a lot. I think it was pretty early in uh, in my time in college too. So this maybe like right. a, maybe I don't think I was a freshman, but perhaps a sophomore. And I was like, I'm not ready for this. I'm 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 a film dumb, student. Uh, dumb dumb Lewis brain. <laughs> I'm dumb. I'm very dumb right now. Please give me some time. There's a uh, there's an intro to Deleuze's book by uh, Todd May, who I've had on the podcast. Hell yeah. Um, but he a uh, section of it is devoted to Berg's and his notion of time, which I think is really fascinating and really interesting. I would definitely recommend. And if either of you want to check out that section or that book, I've yeah. got it. I've got a copy. So yeah. in terms of discussion, did, did either of you have any kind of thematic elements that, that we didn't get into that you want to reference? No, I think I, I already touched on my biggest takeaway thematically from it, which is the the idea of this eternal recurrence, either right. perceived or, or actual actually lived um and at the end of the day at the end of life i guess it doesn't matter if it's perceived or actually lived because it's, it's one of <laughs> the same but um but yeah that i think that works on like a literal as well as just more abstract thematic read of this movie that the idea that these people these people all of us are just doing the same things over or minor variations in the same thing over and over i think that maps onto a a literal kind of more sci-fi yes the universe is continually destroying created and we, we do the same things with minor variations over and over but also just on your your everyday lived experience like what is going to work but not doing the same thing every day over and over just like with minor experiences and in this in everything about the movie captures that um stylistically and from a writing perspective it 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 brings you to that that um emotional connection you know and to kind of piggyback on that there's another film that uh delphine Seyrig uh starred in that has a lot of similar um qualities to it um to specifically what nick is talking about here kind of just eternally uh repeating um just you know these more mundane uh, aspects of our lives is um uh the chantal ackerman film jean dealman uh, which uh is this is later in uh, delphine sarig's life she's she's older and she plays a single mother and we just watch her uh in uh in her flat, just uh, repeating, you know, these very mundane, just like, you know, cutting coupons, maybe not that, but just, you know, like cooking dinner and stuff like that. Um, and she also, she's a sex worker. So having sex with male clients and, and yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's something, you know, a lot of art house films love to do is just like show us repetitious moments from people's lives. And uh, that shit slaps. It's just cool. <laughs> Lewis is officially coming out as a fan of um, Mumblecore. I know, he, I know he happens to love Mumblecore. <laughs> there's one or two okay ones. I'm not the biggest fan, but there's I know, one or I know two you, okay just, ones. Again, I'm giving you shit. I remember we hate. Well, it's we, so funny to think about Mumblecore too. It's like I don't know. I haven't. You know, they don't really get made a lot anymore. Yeah, that, that was kind of like a more of a micro genre that had like a flash yeah. in the pan moment, and then it and a lot of those directors went on to make like bigger films with bigger budgets and bigger stars yeah yeah the yeah. duplices yeah in particular yes right and then the other guy i forget his name joe swanson yeah swanson i mean that's swanson, he yes. makes just like i mean 
I'm sure they cost like a couple of million, some of his more recent movies. Yeah, I, I was being kind of dismissive, but actually my, my glib joke, because I, I know that you have a name view of Mumblecore, like that, that's just another real life example of things repeating because like it's kind of has yeah. that, at least superficially, it has this, uh, this similar aspects to like the French art, art house that you were describing, um, my, minor variations in the same thing as, as everything is in the world and all, in all history, all eternity. Yeah, there's nothing new, folks. It's okay. Just, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry. You know. My last theoretical point is is one to reference psychoanalysis in mm. the sense of X's. So his desire for for A, A yeah. sort of follows the model of the death drive because in the in the death drive you sort of circle you circle this object endlessly, but you never attain the object itself. And that's sort of how like the death drive is this sort of spiraling, almost think of it as like an orbit, like you're orbiting, he's always orbiting the object of his desire, but he's never obtaining. It's all this, you know, continuously. And it even takes that sort of repetitious spiral pattern that I kind of referenced in the context of how, like the, how time sort of operates. But I think that was maybe something that's kind of an interesting reading of that relationship, uh, which goes to like a lot of people have said that there's a psychoanalytic element to the film and like the dialogue between x and a is that between um an analyst and analyzand as they're called it just on a superficial level if we are not superficial but on a more textual level if we take the read that this movie is a depiction of hell or, or limbo or some some kind of spiritual state uh, after death the, this idea of like <laughs> the death drive has been achieved and what happens after that like <laughs> what happens after you get it or there's or, a new object of desire that's more how desire functions is like death drive is you circle the object desire functions more so like you desire an object you get the object the movement is horizontal versus this spiraling around. Okay. Um, that would be more like desire is, is endless. Like you always, there's a new object of desire. You get buyer's remorse. Right. There's always something like you never quite, you never get the satisfaction that you imagine that you right. would get whenever you get right. what you think you want. <laughs> Which is what, what you, is, what you enjoy is the lack. What you enjoy is not getting what you think you want right <laughs> that's where the enjoyment is mm-hmm. and that's what x wants out of a right and we'll mm-hmm. never have, probably <laughs> most likely from our read never have or never never achieve yeah. damn good shit <laughs> good shit folks good shit <laughs> but I, I think that pretty well wraps up discussion i'll let one of you or both of you uh plug your podcast and wherever else i think nick you've got multiple and yeah i am um, i have the Pro kind stuff pulled up, but Lewis, if you don't have it. Oh, okay. good. I was just about to do that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're we're on all the social medias. Uh, most most prominently, Twitter, uh, pro, twitter.com slash proletarian c. Uh, we do have a Patreon, um, patreon.com slash pro underscore con. Uh, we're also on Facebook. Fuck Facebook, just proletarian. Yeah, fuck that one. But <laughs> uh, follow us on Instagram for cute pictures of Lewis's cat, our mascot Celeste. Yes. Uh, Instagram.com slash proletarian dot contrarian. No spaces. Yep. Um, and you can find our podcast on, you know, every podcasting yeah. plat- platform, SoundCloud, iTunes. And we have all that LinkedIn. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. We, we have, yeah, we have all the LinkedIn, all of our things and everything. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Also, my other podcast, let me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm a. Wait, uh, there's more. I'm a, I'm a <laughs> triple, I'm a triple hitter, folks. Um, let me just pull up the yeah. It's it's a one true pod. I am on that show with my friends uh, June and Claire. Um, we're at one underscore true underscore pod, and our bio says uh, a podcast in which you're Catholic, practicing syncretist and atheist, 
hosts analyze the religious themes in popular media each week. So yeah, just quick rundown. Like the, the, the basic idea is we, the three of us are all some flavor of Catholic. Uh, one of us is practicing. One of us is um, kind of a practicing syncretic with other spirituality. One of us is atheist. That's me, obviously. And we, we approach different media. We, we've done some interesting things. Like we, we don't just do movies. We've done like, we did a comic. We did a contract with God, the, uh, the graphic novel by... By Eisner, uh, we we did an episode um, on the Garden of Earthly Delights, the Hieronymus Bach painting. That was fun. But yeah, just running through these things and, and coming at it from a vaguely leftist, but the, the focus is definitely um, religious, like through a Catholic lens. So yeah, those, those are my two podcasts. Let me pitch this to both of you as a, as a potential idea. So mm-hmm. I've, I was talking to Nick about this. So there's like 150 films, I think, that I thought you were going to say Pokemon. I was like, I'm aware of that. <laughs> so there's a there's 150 films or so, roughly, maybe 200 that get referenced in the Deleuze cinema books one and two. Like there's a list on, mm-hmm. what's the, I mean, there, I think there's multiple lists, like there's blog posts with them, but I think there's like, what's the review? Letterbox. Yes. Letterbox has a list. So what I would like to maybe do is potentially like pitch this as a reoccurring thing. I, I think it's like, I enjoy having you both like, this is it really rounds out yeah like the different perspectives of all of us because i like i've got kind of the theory mm-hmm. heavy background with a little bit of production and like experience in that world sure lewis you've had the film student experience and angle and like production side nick as well as and always, i have all the rest it's, it's <laughs> always like he you're always pointing out those little things mm. every time like you always have at least four or five <laughs> yeah. really good things that like have I'm slipped glad. under the radar for me. For sure. Um, so what I'd like to propose is what we do is potentially discuss one of those Deleuze cinema films yeah. on the podcast. Yeah. Because I think it's a lot more like one that I've been wanting to do and potentially was even thinking about what we could do was like Breathless would be a good one. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that's one that, that uh, Deleuze references, but there's like 200 to choose from. But anyways, right. so put that in the back. That's in the in the back of your minds as, as sort of a reoccurring. Yeah, I mean, we we definitely series we could do. I, I know Lewis has been pretty diligent in keeping up with movies during this endless quarantine, <laughs> this endless Mary in bed quarantine that we all live in. Yeah, seriously, no shit. Um, shit yeah, we didn't even touch I, upon that. Damn. <laughs> but with with Procon, I'm I'm just watching Drek every week <laughs> i watch yeah, the worst it's, shit I it's to, nice to watch a good movie every once in a while yeah i, I need um, to watch so any opportunity to do that i welcome for sure yeah but yeah i mean uh i can go crack open my copy of uh to lose cinema one and two and i can uh, go to the index and uh find us a film <laughs> yeah exactly cool yeah yeah we'll we'll definitely be doing this more regularly more often i think for sure yeah love to come right. on again I, I love that. I think these are these are fun. These are a lot of fun to to nerd out on films with with both of you. So, yeah, thank you fun. both for uh, joining me on Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour this week. Again, you can find me on Twitter at unconscioushh, on Instagram at unconsciousHH, on Patreon at www.patreon forward slash muhh, and. Uh, Again, Cooper Cherry with Machine Unconscious Happy Hour signing off from Marion Bad. <laughs> <laughs>